Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover book three of The Dark Tower, The Wastelands, chapter one, Barren Bone. Let's start the show. We are off to a brand new book in the series, book number three, and it picks up some months after the final confrontation at the beach. A physically healed Roland is teaching Eddie and Susanna to be gunslingers while dealing with some strange memories. One day, while Susanna is off with Roland practicing marksmanship, a giant robotic bear attacks a whittling Eddie. Between the bear and other miscellaneous robots, Eddie and Susanna use guns for the first time. Roland drops some knowledge about beams, guardians, and the tower, while also confronting the paradox that he may be responsible for creating. Ooh. Fun stuff. Yeah. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels. Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. All right, but before we get into the details of the book, uh, Jay, as we like to do when we tackle a new book, it's fun to talk a little bit about the publication context and where this fits in into the larger Stephen King oeuvre, as it were. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So this book comes about four years after the drawing of the three. Um, It was published in August of 19... 1991, which is significant because we had both just graduated from high school. Yay, us. (laughs) Um, And actually, King had written the book between October 89 and January of 90, so he really plowed through this book in about a three or four month period. Um, There was an excerpt for this book published in Fantasy and Science Fiction, December 1990, which you will all remember was the magazine that he originally had published the short stories that made up the gunslinger um, where this fits in with stephen king's other works the dark half october 89 was just a little bit before this uh, the short story collection four past midnight september of 1990 and then needful things came out uh later the same year october 91 so just after this book any memories of those books jay of course Needful Things, probably uh, the most memorable. I, I really like that story, and I read that many years before I read or even discovered the Dark Tower books. Okay. So I kind of had that reversed from, uh, from Stephen King's perspective. And Needful Things, if I remember, is the final Castle Rock story it was billed as, right? Yeah, I think so. And it had this movie starring Ed Harris, if I recall correctly. Ah, interesting. I yeah. I remember reading it in October of 91, and I bet I have not read it since. I think I that was one of those, this was sort of the time period where I would pick up the Stephen King books and read them in a night, like I'd stay up till three in the morning and finish them mm-hmm. on day of publication, and I bet I have not gone back to that book since, and I don't think I saw the movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I only read all of those one time. I think I read the dark half uh, on a vacation, like that was like a, a beach read for me. 
I was really entertained by that book. Aside from it definitely delving into his uh, pseudonym, uh, I guess, struggles and maybe some of his uh, dealings with uh, alcoholism and stuff like that. I mean, it was one of the more autobiographical authorized protagonist stories. I don't think Stephen King's alter ego was carried away by sparrows in the middle of the night, though. So, no, <laughs> maybe a little bit of artistic <laughs> liberty there. Fun, yeah. fun fact about the dark half: the movie with Timothy Hutton, I believe, was mm-hmm. filmed at my wife's college. Um, oh, cool! And so she and she was actually at the school when it was being filmed. So I think that was in the early '90s. So there, her and her friends have stories of Timothy Hutton hanging out at the bars near campus. Or um, did they get to do any like walk on extra roles or anything like that? My wife didn't, but one of her good friends did. You could see him for two seconds in the background of one scene, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. So uh, one thing I do want to call out about the books is that so the dark half deals with sort of this split personality, alter ego. There's a story in Four Past Midnight, which, as you can tell, is probably it's four novellas. Um, one of the stories in that is about a writer who thinks he may have plagiarized another writer and some back and forth there, but it ends up being that they're split personalities as well. Ooh. So two split personalities in Dark Half and Four Past Midnight. And, you know, we just got through with the Odetta Detta split. Yeah, it must have been something that King really uh, needed to gnaw on for a while because yeah. he has it in three, like, if you count the dark tower as one story it's like at least three stories that he's written right you know and even in this book and we get a little piece of it and we'll talk about it i'm sure like there's this divided nature of roland as he has these memories and this paradox that i alluded to so um just an interesting theme i'm sure somebody can blow that out into a master's thesis and graduate (laughs) from college so go for it you can put jay and i in the uh credits yeah a bunch of movies came out around this time i think sort of Peak King movie-wise, maybe, um, for some of these. Tales from the Dark Side, May 90, not so much. Graveyard Shift, uh, October 90, again, not so much. But Misery came out in November of 90, which was fantastic. Kathy Bates. duty Misery. (laughs) Yes. The It miniseries, November of 1990. Um, Sometimes They Come Back was a TV movie in May of 91. And then there was a TV series that I don't remember much about called Golden Years that I think King wrote specifically for uh, a summertime TV show that I have no recollection of whatsoever. But is sometimes they come back. Is that based on one of his short stories? Yep. From, it sounds like it's from Skeleton. It's no, I, sometimes they come back is either from Skeleton Crew or um, yeah, I think it's from Skeleton Crew. And it's one about I think it's somewhat a similar one to Christine. I think some there's just like some bullies. It's not the reach, though. Oh, OK. Someone listening to this podcast is yelling, sometimes they come back was my favorite TV movie of all time. (laughs) Stop mocking it. I watch it every summer. (laughs) All right. So the title of this book is The Wastelands. I noticed you emphasized that it was two words there. Well, it's interesting. So I was doing a little research on this, and it's obviously a callback to the T.S. Eliot poem, The Wasteland which is a modernist poem from 1922, which you may know for one of its famous lines is April is the cruelest month. I thought Smarch was the worst month. <laughs> Lousy Smarch <laughs> weather. <laughs> you might also recognize a bit of this line, Jay, 
I will show you fear in a handful of dust. And oh, this, that does sound familiar yeah. for some reason. So the first book of this book is called uh, Handful of Dust. Um, but it's interesting that Eliot was, after the book was published, it was often referred to as Wasteland, one word, or just Wasteland, two words. And he made a point in a letter to a fellow poet, Ezra Pound, saying, it is the wasteland, three words, the first one is the. So I will now remember that this book is the wastelands, three words, the first one is the. We can all blame it on Ezra. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, yes, we did graduate high school in 1991. <laughs> uh, so the. T.S. Eliot poem has many different allusions. Um, we're not going to do an analysis here and now, but one thing I wanted to note is he calls out tarot cards in the poem a lot, um, which is a something that's come up before. So all interesting stuff. Finally, for this book, before we get into the content, the artist, so we've had three different artists for each of the first three books. This um, artist is Ned Dameron whose artwork looked familiar to me, but I figured that was just because I had flipped through this book before. But it turns out that in addition to the art for The Wastelands, he also did, does a lot of fantasy art, and he did a lot of Dungeons & Dragons art, which if doing a podcast on Stephen King wasn't geeky enough, Jay, I am also a big Dungeons & Dragons <laughs> fan. So I'm sure... You're not I, just a fan, you're a player. I, I am both a player and a dungeon master, Jay. So. Yeah. So I think I've encountered uh, Ned Dameron's art before in Dragon Magazine, and he did the covers of some of the uh, Dragonlance books that I read when I was in high school. So uh, I like the art in this book a lot. Yeah, it's pretty great. So that's a lot of stuff on the publication history. Anything you want to add there, Jay, or did I cover it ad nauseum? I think you, uh, you delved deep enough getting into the book a little bit. One of the things that I really thought was cool about this book was that we're finally taking a deep dive into the mythology and a little bit more world building, but it's really the mythology of Roland's world. Like we've been hearing hints and and almost just little nuggets and whispers of of this, that, or the other thing. But here it's like I don't know if King maybe realized as he was writing this book that. I've now written and published two books that take place in this world and have built a few important characters, but I haven't really kind of figured out where things are geographically, where or how how things work, or what's the deeper history, what led to this moment in the time in time where the story takes place. So he just kind of just uh, info dumps on us all over the place here. He certainly does, and we get uh, we get a lot of info. In in very short period of time, but it's fun info, and it's and he does it quite masterfully in very exciting ways. Uh, for example, we learn about the beams for the first time. We learn about the guardians of those beams. We kind of have gotten hints about this mysterious organization or company called North Central Positronics. We encountered some of their technology in the way station in mm -hmm. in book one yep. with the water pump and. So just learning that there, there are real details and real structure to these things. They're not, it's not just a crumbling world that has moved on. It's actually something that existed and had form. 
and that there's more to it than just bits of dust at this point. I thought it was a lot of fun and it really helped me to get excited about what comes next as well. I think that I'm always hungry for mythology when it comes to the books that I love and I always want to know the rest of the story. Why are the characters the way they are? Why is the world they live in the way that it is? And we really start getting that for the first time in this book. Yeah, no, I agree. I do like getting some answers to some of these questions we may have had. And, um, you know, we do get a lot of that. We're in a good position where Roland knows all this information, but he's got a captive audience who doesn't know any of this information. So it doesn't come across as, you know, one of the things that writers have a hard time doing is when two characters know the same information. How do we discuss it Mm -hmm. in such a way? Yes, brother, you are four years older than me. So we must, (laughs) I will take your lead because you are the one who is older, you know? So, you know, the fact that Eddie and Susanna can ask these questions and sort of say, what does this mean? And what, you know, what am I looking at? And what, you know, how does this all come together? Gives us an opportunity to hear about this in a somewhat natural way. So Stephen King can do, as you said, an info dump without necessarily forcing it on us and making it seem like he's prying it in. The one thing I will add to that, though, is when I got to this, I was wondering, what the heck was Roland's plan exactly? So, you know, book one was pretty clear. I'm going to follow the man in black, and I have questions to ask him. And we all remember the most important question he had to ask, which really wasn't (laughs) that important. But (laughs) I kind of forgot it at this point. The second book was, you're going to draw three, and you're sick too. So like it was very much he had a mission, you know, don't die Mm -hmm. and draw three. And at the very beginning of this book, King finally gives us an answer to who the three are. I don't know if you noticed, but in the argument section, he says that the three are Eddie, Odetta, and Detta are the three. And then the the last two became Susanna. So, you know, we, we went back and forth about that in our last discussion, but King answers it at the beginning of the argument section. Well, there you go. There you go. So if only we had read a little bit earlier, we could have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But in this book, you know, he's obviously teaching Susanna and Eddie how to use the guns. And this takes place, you know, weeks or a couple months after that. But you get a sense of what exactly was Roland's plan? Why did he think of, oh, yeah, I should go follow the beams or, hey, I should be looking for a guardian because once I find a guardian, I'll find a beam. And then that'll be what leads me to the Dark Tower. But it does seem like they're just sort of roaming around this forest and things will happen. But I guess the answer to that, as it always is, is Ka, right? I suppose. <laughs> I mean, the the beams are a little problematic now because we're hinted at the existence of the beams in the revised version of book one. But even with that hint, it's not apparent that the beams exist. It's not apparent that Roland even knows that the beams exist, let alone that he ought to follow one. Right. But here... Suddenly, not only does he know that the beams exist, he knows all of the mythology of the beams. He knows the rules of the beams. He knows where they start, where they end, and what it means to follow one and how to follow one, how to spot one. He knows that there's a guardian waiting at the end of uh, at each end of the beam. So, how did the person who had all that knowledge go through book one and book two and never mention it, never right. say, "Hey, keep your eye out for these signs of a beam," because that'll take us where we want to go? You yeah. know. Like that never comes up. And maybe in book two, he kind of didn't really have the opportunity. And he was going door to door and, you know, getting better right, and and, uh, trying not to die of his infection and stuff like that. But in book one, he was trying to find the tower. If he had come to a signpost that said, man in black to the left, (laughs) 
tower to the right, he would have just turned right. Yep. And that's what the beams are. That's what he tells us they are here. That if you follow the beam, you will either get to a guardian or you will get to the tower. Right. And since they have found a guardian, they know, walk away from that spot on the beam and you'll get to the tower. Yep. And that seems like really important info. And he should have been following (laughs) that advice all along. And it is sort of funny because, you know, they have been hanging out for, let's say, at the minimum five weeks, right? Since the door, uh-huh. he's he's taken his Keflex, he's gotten healthy, they're starting to use the gun, they're hunting, etc. And it's not like there's a TV for them to watch or a book to read. Like, they're just sitting around the campfire every night. You yep. think, like, they could only tell him so many stories about New York City before they were like, hey, Roland, why don't you tell us about your world? And I guess it just doesn't come up like, <laughs> I'm going to tell you all this stuff that will be important to our quest until we actually find something. But hey, yeah. who am I to judge? It all seems to work out, and they have a very concrete plan, right? We we know which way to go. Mm-hmm. The big concern for Roland is, hey, it's going to get longer and longer the more we wait, because he knows that time is stretching and distance is stretching. So we better get a move on. And Eddie and Susanna think, hey, pushing this heavy wheelchair is going to be tough. And Roland says, don't worry, we'll get there. It'll be fine. We're just going to keep walking. So yeah, once he's convinced that the mythology that he knows is true, he he knows that, hey, we're going in the right direction. Let's just do this and we'll be fine. And you mentioned a moment ago that he's Roland is teaching Eddie and Susanna how to shoot. But I think he's He's not just teaching them how to shoot. He's teaching them how to be gunslingers Mm, because there's more to being a gunslinger than knowing how to shoot. That's obviously maybe a really important part of it. You know, if you were teaching them how to fight with a sword, I would maybe they wouldn't be called gunslingers. But he's teaching them what it means to to be a gunslinger. So we get a little bit of mythology on that too. Yep. In a different way than we get it when we were experiencing Roland's training via his flashbacks and memories. We're seeing Roland now take on the the role of teacher and seeing what he chooses to share with them. And maybe it's different because they're older. Maybe it's different because they're from a different world and they, they haven't grown up with the culture and the rules and the history that he grew up with. Certainly they didn't grow up in the same, you know, kingdom. Right. And they talk a little bit about that, right? How he says to Susanna, if court had heard you say that he would have taken you and smacked you and mm-hmm. they're like no that's not how things would work in our world and he realizes he has to be a different kind of teacher but he knows what buttons to push to get yeah. Susanna to come out you know and bare her teeth and really shoot with her heart and kill with her heart you know he's, right. able, he, he's able to figure that out and he's able to do that with Eddie too and both of them get these revelations during this section right so they both have their encounter with the gun mm-hmm. Susanna shooting the giant robotic bear. Right. And she feels this sort of like, wow, the power I have and mm-hmm. the coldness is the thing that I remember them mentioning, right? Like yes. he must he must feel like this all the time. And mm-hmm. even and though it scares her. It scares her, but at the same time, she's like, I wonder when I'll get to do that again. Mm-hmm. And then Eddie's very much the same way. So he's in a little bit of a different position. You know, they're both in a similar position where they're trying to save the person they love. Susanna trying to save Eddie from the bear. And then, um, you know, it's a, it's supposed to be a training exercise. Roland lets Eddie shoot these little robotic creatures that are sort of winding down at the Shardik's lair. When one of them sort of gets away and Roland has to take care of it himself. But again... Eddie says the same sort of thing, like he feels like, wow, how can he be like this all the time? And yet he's like, ooh, 
this is sort of cool. <laughs> it's yeah. It feels weird and feels scary, but it also feels empowering, I think. So it's like maybe a sort of another type of thing to be addicted to or, or realize that is addicting. Mm. Like that rush that you feel. A lot, there are a lot of people who are like adrenaline junkies. You know, maybe it's something like that. Yep. So, I mean, we don't need to go too much into the actual what happens, but, you know, there is this big giant bear that's the guardian that attacks Eddie. They trace it back to this layer that looks like a subway piece, and that's one end of the uh, the beam, and it seems a little bit spooky. They get some really weird vibes off it, off of it, Eddie especially. Um, yeah. But, but then they decide they know which way they want to go. Um, but before they head for the beam, they they sleep and take camp, and Eddie starts to have these visions, right? Right. Um, and this is where we get really our one of our best descriptions of the Dark Tower thus far. Um, and it's especially seeing it from Eddie's point of view as opposed to Roland's point of view, because we've talked before about how Eddie's had this back and forth between does he he feels betrayed by Roland he's been brought into this world and kidnapped he wants to go back but then he doesn't want to go back and then he gets this description of the dark tower and he starts to see where he falls into this so we had talked a yeah. little bit about how he's starting to take up whittling which is something that um his brother mocked him for when he was younger because he was good at it and and Henry obviously didn't like his younger brother being good at anything but He's taken up this whittling again. He starts to have this vision about the tower, and he sees a key, and he, it's very important for him to remember the shape of this key. Um, and then we get that nice description of the tower with a field of roses, etc. It's an image that has been kind of introduced to us over and over again by so many Dark Tower artists, fans, or the artists working for the publishers alike. And it's always this field of roses and this almost coal black spire and even though it's important and even though it's something that these gunslingers who are on a life and death quest to reach it it's still something that for some reason seems uh scary or there's there's some sort of evil that's mixed in with the the power that it it emanates as well um so it's it's very much um dual natured or yeah because he i mean I'm, I'm going to quote a little bit from the book during his his vision, how gorgeous it is, Eddie marveled, how gorgeous and strange, but his feeling of joy and triumph had departed. He was left with a sense of deep malaise and impending doom. He looked about him and realized with sudden horror that he was standing in the shadow of the tower, not just standing in it, buried alive in it. You yeah. know, so that gets to that piece where it's beautiful and he's drawn to it and he's just sort of entranced by it. And then when he's actually realizes where he's at is when he's like, oh my God, this isn't good. I'm, I'm in a shadow and it's just this horrendous doom. And I think this is where you can start to see the Lord of the Rings influence on King, obviously, right? Sort of the, yeah. the, the Mordor piece of, of it all coming together. Eddie gets this vision for the key when uh, Chekhov's jawbone finally goes off. <laughs> so I guess, I guess King felt instead of Act 3, he would put it in Book 3. And have Chekhov's jawbone go off when uh, Roland, for no particular reason at all and without any warning, throws the man in black's jawbone into the campfire. Yep. And as it heats up and glows red and it starts to take on new meanings and new shapes that apparently only Eddie sees. 
and one of those shapes that he sees is this key and he remembers very specific details about the key and he forces himself to memorize that shape so that he can carve it later so there's no question that that's going to be important we don't know why yet but eddie knows it's important and then just as he's realizing what this shape is the jawbone i guess gets hot enough that it just blows up right and disintegrates in the fire so it was a magic totem one final time for for at least one of the member of the the group yeah and it's interesting now that i've revealed my dungeons and dragons uh geekdom i feel free in saying this this is starting to remind me of when you put together a, a dungeon party where each person has their own sets of skills that they bring and how they're all going to be needed for the adventure in some way and it seems like eddie's going to be a gunslinger and that's important um but he doesn't you know i think roland points out that suzanne is more skilled with the guns than eddie is or seems to be like she's got an eye and he points that out and it's taken a little bit longer for Eddie to learn, but he's learning, but we see that Eddie's going to bring some other skills as well. Right. So he's going to yeah. be able to carve. Um, he notices a piece of, of stick is there at the, at the end of this chapter that he's like, ah, that's the one I need. And Roland's like, do you want to share it with me? And he's like, no, not yet. I'm, I'm good. He's not ready to sort of explain everything yet, but he knows something that's going to be helpful for them. So he's got this nice, character arc i think in this first chapter right so eddie yeah he's fighting these pieces of the past which we've talked before about how roland is not somebody who's always looking backwards he's always looking forward and he's trying to get eddie to make that same decision to you know stop being in the shadow of your brother stop looking backwards we've also got this arc for eddie by the end of this chapter he is also a true dark tower devotee like he's 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 addicted just as much as roland is and he I think he even says in one of his thoughts that if he had an opportunity to go back to his world before he could see the tower, he doesn't think he would take it um, because yeah. he's so addicted to it. So, And it, it's all from the, the images he sees in these visions and dreams because obviously he, I mean, and Roland too, Roland's never seen the tower. He no. only knows of it from the promise that it brings and yep. the stories he's been told. So it's really no different for Eddie, but Eddie is definitely true blue tower junkie now. Yep, sure. Absolutely. Now, Susanna's arc is not quite as pronounced necessarily as Eddie's, but she is becoming a formidable gunslinger. Absolutely, yeah. We start off this chapter with her and Roland doing some practice shooting uh, for the first time with live am ammunition in a, in a field, and she's able to hit all six pieces of stone he's set up as targets, even though she feels she missed the sixth one, but then he shows her Nope, you nicked it. You got there's a notch out of this. Yep, you've got it, and you know that could be enough in a gunfight to to win you the battle. So she's definitely got the eye to be a gunslinger, and also the anger that he's able to pull out of her, and you see the dead aside start to come yeah, out to some extent. She kills with her heart, motherfucker. That's right. And at the same time, Suzanne is interesting because she has this dual nature of being both independent. You know, she's starting to be her own woman with the gunslinging and, and being able to do that. But at the same time, she's still somewhat dependent on both Roland and Eddie for getting around and, and some of those other pieces, because obviously she still does not have her legs. So um, that seems to be a theme that we might be visiting more as we get to that. She, at, at times she feels like she's hampering them. Um, and at the same time, she doesn't want to be the one who's stuck sort of in a C3PO basket that they've seen in Empire Strikes Back, where they sort of, 
slap her on Roland's back and have a backpack where they put her in. Yeah. And she really resents that thing. She does. She does. But at the same time, she's proven herself in this first chapter with her killing of the Shardik to be um, well worth being another member of this party. Yeah, there's no question. Though, I wonder, it, it doesn't come to this, but in the, the moment when Eddie has shot all of Shardik's little assistant robots, but nobody noticed the, the flying one. Yep. And as it swoops down and, and Eddie kind of, I don't remember if he's just panicked or if he's run out of ammo or 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 something but when Roland is like almost preternaturally fast and he draws his his left gun and shoots the thing out of the sky and both Eddie and Susanna like they can't believe how <laughs> fast he he was yep and it as fast as they themselves have become and as accurate as they are that he's still just a whole another level beyond that so like maybe the when he was holding Susanna and she was aiming at the radar dish on Shardik's head. Um, if she missed, even if she emptied the gun and never hit him, like I think he could have drawn yes. the gun <laughs> and then shot with while holding her on his shoulder, he still could have done it. So like he says to Eddie, no one was ever in any danger. Nope. But you say that, but we realize, and this is where we get to Roland's arc in this chapter, that they yeah. really are in a lot of danger, right? Mm-hmm. it's just the danger is not from the shardic and it's not from these little robot creatures it no, might it's be from Roland. it's from roland himself because when they see how fast he is they realize that at the same time something is off with roland and we have found out that the reason that roland is off is because he seems to remember saving a boy named jake and letting him then fall to his death but then at the same time he also remembers never meeting jake at all because it turns out that in book two when he was in Mort's body and didn't push Jake into the street, that may have set off some sort of time travel paradox. And while he has spoken about Jake to Eddie before, Eddie has no recollection of him speaking about Jake. Yeah, in this revised timeline, that never happened. That Those yes. conversations about Jake never happened with Eddie. So, uh, And I couldn't remember when I first uh, was reading through this section that, like, did Roland ever mention Jake in book two? Like, I think he did but i can't remember it so i yeah. totally understand if eddie doesn't know because time travel has canceled this whole thing out right so they're worried about roland because and roland's worried about himself because he's starting to feel this dark half dual nature fighting itself right so this mm-hmm. is the, what we were talking about and it's really helping roland start to go a little bit insane and he's worried about himself and he hands the guns over to Susanna and eddie because he feels that he cannot be trusted with them. Yeah. And they're at first unsure if they should do that, but they get scared enough that they realize that that's probably the best course of action until they can figure out what's going on with him. It's kind of a weird moment. They're like, no, we can't take your guns. But the very night before when (laughs) Roland was asleep and having a nightmare about this, they're both like, we should find a way to take his guns. (laughs) This is not good. (laughs) But at the same time, they're like, we can't go take his gun because if we do, he's going to grab it and shoot one of us. Exactly. We're too scared to actually take the gun. Yeah. Yeah. What I was going to say is it's really sad because Roland is becoming more human than we've seen him maybe in the Mm -hmm. other books. Um, You know, we started to see a lot of it in towards the end of book two, where he would joke around with Eddie to some extent, or, you know, at least seem a little bit, less than the cold killing machine he was but you get the sense that these three are becoming a family to some extent or at least respect each other and it's sad Mm -hmm. to see that he's starting to push them away because of his potential mental issues yep just when they pull him in he's gotta push him back out (laughs) yes 
I'm sure uh, we will see these characters go through a lot more since we still have five sixths of this book to go. It, you know, is a it, it a pretty exciting start to this book? Showdown with the Shardik, a lot of uh, knowledge dropped on us in in an interesting way, and we have a good sense of what's going to happen next, which is let's follow the beam and get to the tower. So, I'm sure we'll probably get there by the end of this book, and everything will wrap up nice and cozy in a little yeah. In it's the Dark Tower time. trilogy, right? Right, yeah, I know. Everything good comes in three, so I figure I'll all be wrapped up by the end of this. <laughs> all right. We oftentimes like to do fun stuff, Jay. Yeah. Was there any fun stuff in this book? Sure. Lots of fun stuff. Uh, one of the fun things was uh, I, I was puzzling over what year it was when Eddie was drawn into Roland's world because... He makes a whole bunch of references to RoboCop, which didn't come out till 1987. And I could have sworn he was from a little bit earlier in time than RoboCop in 1987. But what's your take on that? Yeah, so I wonder that too. And I went to our handy dandy Bev Vincent, The Road to the Dark Tower compendium. Hi, Bev. (laughs) And I looked at the timeline. And according to Bev's timeline, Eddie and Roland uh, kill Enrique Balazar in 1987. The RoboCop movie came out in the summer of 1987. So I guess we can assume that uh, Eddie's adventures with Roland happened late enough in 87 that he could have seen RoboCop just before getting swept off to Roland's world so that he could be really knowledgeable on Murphy's fun times turning into a cyborg and eating baby food eating baby food yeah i guess so like when eddie wasn't on the nod on heroin or babysitting <laughs> his completely like i don't know bedridden junkie brother and not going on drug runs he probably had time to squeeze in a movie right? yeah sure yeah i mean who doesn't Gotta and go- remember it so vividly that it like had a big impact on his life and his <laughs> pop culture references of course of course <laughs> Well, maybe maybe he saw it after he finished reading Watership Down. <laughs> yes, Watership Down, right. He is very knowledgeable about literature, um, children's literature that serves as a uh, metaphor. Nightmare into a, material a, a, for a children? A nightmare dystopian metaphor of our super industrialized <laughs> life. So you're, of course, referring to Richard Adams' book Watership Down about rabbits, right. which is then further referenced in The Name of the Bear, right? Yes, because Richard Adams also wrote a book about a mythological giant bear called Shardik. And that's why when Eddie sees the name, he's like, oh, something's making me think of rabbits. <laughs> so I was pretty impressed at his uh, literary prowess there that not only did he know the Shardik name and how it could subconsciously connect him back to Adams, but uh, that he would probably read all of Adams' work. Yes. <laughs> so go Eddie. Yeah, I mean, between the oars to oars and the oars to combat, don't ever doubt yeah. uh, Eddie's knowledge when it comes to uh, literature, foreign language, mm-hmm. all that stuff. I'm sure we could go to him for some wastelands knowledge. He can, or wasteland knowledge. He can drop some T. S. Eliot on us. Yeah, he could probably <laughs> quote the whole thing. <laughs> uh, one of the things I wanted to point out that's sort of fun in this section is that. As good of a writer as Stephen King is, he wanted to be sure that you could visualize how the beams worked and what shape the key was. So he did a little Kurt Vonnegut style drawings right in the middle of the text so that we get uh, a couple of, of, of crude, crude drawings that reminded yeah. me of Kurt Vonnegut, who does some of that stuff in his books as well. So whether that was a deliberate homage or not, 
I know when I had to write stories when I was in school, sometimes I would put uh, drawings in so I could get to that 10 pages that I need to finish out the story. <laughs> <laughs> see figure one. Yes. And then see figure two. Yes. So, but we get the, the, the beam, the key, the diverging time paths that look vaguely. Flashpoint. I was going to say vaginal, but okay. <laughs> well, they do look like that, but the uh, Flash comic book and the TV show from it, it's uh, alternate timelines all over the place with that story. I'm a Marvel guy, Jay. You know that. So am I. <laughs> but I watched the TV show. Um, we already mentioned, uh, but one of the most fun things is your favorite word, motherfucker. And we get uh, Susanna dropping the I kill with my heart, motherfucker. Yeah. The gunslinger Creed is awesome enough on its own but when she like kind of totally zeroes in and has that laser focused moment and then speaks the last line adding the motherfucker it's like it's like that little extra seasoning on there that just makes it even more delicious yes indeed it's like a pat of butter on a steak And we continue with the tradition of characters hearing the voices of others inside their minds. So Roland is obviously hearing his own voice doubled in his mind. Um, But Eddie's hearing a lot of voices still, although not in any sort of creepy way that thinks of mental illness, but just sort of hearing his brother's voice again and hearing Roland's voice ahead again. So Jack um, Andalini talks to him a couple times in his visions. Yeah. So um, old double ugly. This seems to be a, an ongoing thing with King is hearing these voices and how they help even direct the characters to some extent um, and make decisions or at least guide them or maybe not guide them in the case of, of Henry like that sort of Eddie sort of talks back and says, no, I'm going to put my brother behind me and move on and mm-hmm. take up whittling like a good man should, like Andy, yep. Andy Griffith style or something. <laughs> I mean, he does have that giant knife that Roland has that's sharp as anything, so might as well put it to yeah. use. Probably not the best Whitland knife. But... <laughs> I wouldn't think. It's a good killing knife. Yeah. <laughs> that's enough for killing, not Whitland. There are a few lines I liked a lot. Blameless blue sky. Mm. thought that was cool. Yeah. And uh thought it was an interesting comparison that King makes when he says beating heroin was child's play compared to beating your childhood. <laughs> yes. I mean, that it kind of paints a picture. Like we all can think of our childhood and think about whatever good and bad things there are in that. If heroin's deeper and harder to extract yourself from than your own past, that must be a really powerful drug. Yep. <laughs> I, I have not tried it myself. I have no wish to. (laughs) I have no wish to. (laughs) Oh, and this was a really good one. That high days of concentration, which accompanies the creative impulse at its sweetest and most powerful. As somebody who's pretty creative, at least I like to think so, I know what it's like to get in that zone. I know what it feels like. And it is a pretty great feeling. Sometimes just chasing after that feeling is enough to keep you motivated to do creative things. So, but I think it was when Eddie was sort of in the zone when he was carving and he realized that just time just flew by and he had no connection to his surroundings because he was so focused on the wood and the knife that he was in that days of concentration that only creativity can really connect you to. Yeah, that line jumped out to me too. I just finished reading a biography of Prince a couple of weeks ago and they talked about how obviously creative Prince was and how he was always working. 
and how we would get into these zones. And he even wrote a song called Flow. And there was a a social scientist who did some work and called that that getting into that zone, the flow, where everything Whoa. seems to be clicking and it really gets your creative juices um, running. And so I I made that connection right away too, that this is something that where time doesn't seem to matter, you're doing your best work. It's that right amount of challenge and interest so that it's not too easy for you to do that you could start thinking about something else, but it's not too hard that you can't do it. It's just right in that sweet spot where you just run with it. And so I made the connection to Prince, oddly enough. <laughs> oh, um, one thing that I thought was interesting was uh, early in the chapter, Roland is sort of thinking about what his role is as a teacher and what it is for Eddie and Susanna to be his students or his apprentices as gunslingers. And he's sort of shocked a little bit at just how cruel they can be at times when he's he's trying to bring the anger out of Susanna to get her to focus and get her to concentrate. And he says, um, he says, you know, he's teaching her to bite, but if he if he pushes her too hard, she's going to bite again and it's not going to be playful next time. But then he sort of almost reprimands himself. It's like, of course, I mean, I'm teaching them to be gunslingers. <laughs> and then he says, was he not training them to bite? Wasn't that what a gunslinger was when you stripped off the few stern lines of ritual and stilled the few iron grace notes of catechism? Wasn't he or she only a human hawk trained to bite on command? And I love the the language in that line. It's it's really poetic, but I think that's like just too stark of a yeah. description of a gunslinger. I think I see he's making the point if you distill them down to their base elements, that's all that's left. But I think there's got to be more. There's still there should be honor and sense of justice and a sense of compassion that should go with being a gunslinger. Gunslingers are a kind of knight. There should be nobility in there as well. I don't think that all of those things are what's in the iron grace notes of catechism. Right. I think those things need to be inherent in and of themselves. But that's just my take. And of course, the mention of the human hawk reminds us of David, his hawk. Yeah. And David was really just a tool or, or another weapon to win that battle against court and become a gunslinger. But the difference is, is that Roland is not just a tool. He has the planning and cunning to come up with that. The hawk couldn't right. do that. Um, they're not automatons. The shardic is an automaton to some extent, right? It just knows that it needs to kill and go and do this thing, but it doesn't have that cunning or that thinking of making that next step. And that might be also what, you know, to get to my point, what I said earlier about they bring different skills to the table and Roland has that cunning and Eddie is going to have the skill of whittling that it looks like is going to be important as he's thinking through, I saw this vision and it means something and I'm going to puzzle this together. I'm not sure if we've seen what Susanna is necessarily going to bring other than that bite, but I think there's probably more that she's going to bring to the table as well. So I would agree that that's, that's a little bit too stark. They're not just weapons walking into war. They're more than that. Right. Mentioning Shardik again reminds me that um, we got another good piece of fan art from listener Sonia of Shardik. That's right. We can post that in our show notes. And I've been seeing a lot of great fan art recently on Twitter, and I've been trying to call that out where I can. So if you're following us on Twitter, take a look at some of that fan art that's out there. And I'd also like to recommend the uh, 
Dark Tower Lego Twitter feed. Yeah, that guy's making awesome stuff. He's doing the Lord's work there with uh, the Lego minifigs. Uh, he had a nice little how he puts those shots together and sets them up and does a little bit of Photoshop at the end to bring it all together, but some quality stuff there. So if you would like to see your fan art mentioned on the show, we're always looking for that stuff. I know, Jay, you enjoy it. I've seen some great tattoos some great drawings, some paintings. We've talked about some music that people have done. So send it in. We'd love to highlight it. Yeah, absolutely. Keep it coming. All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower. And our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we cover Book 3 of the Dark Tower, The Wastelands, Chapter 2, Key and Rose. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening.